Hello and welcome to the Memory Chapel podcast. Memory Chapel is a small, rural, non-denominational Christian church located on Banceville Road in 84, Pennsylvania. On this podcast, we feature an edited version of our Sunday morning worship service at the chapel and the Bible teaching of Pastor David All. Thanks for joining us. And now, let's get to the worship. Good morning. Welcome in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to see you all here today. Our call to worship this morning comes from Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. Jesus says, But I say to you who listen, love your enemies, do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone hits you on the cheek, Offer the other also. And if anyone takes away your coat, don't hold back your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks you. And from someone who takes your things, don't ask for them back. Just as you want others to do for you, do the same for them. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do what is good to those who are good to you, What credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do what is good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. For He is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. This is the word of the Lord. If you have your scriptures open today to the book of James, chapter 1, we will be reading today verses 12 through 18. And you're going to find that James is coming back around to talk about some things he's already talked about. I think this is something that preachers are prone to do. They repeat themselves. We're going to see James repeating himself here today in some places, but he's adding some new things in. He's been talking in chapter 1 about trials, testing. He, He tells us that we should consider it to be a great joy whenever we're going through hard times. Because the testing of our faith produces endurance, and endurance brings about maturity in our lives so that we can be complete, lacking nothing. Well, now we're in verse 12, and he wants to talk a little bit more about times of testing, times of trial, times of difficulty in our lives. And so here we are in James chapter 1, verse 12. James says, blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Blessed is the one who endures trials. That word blessed could be translated happy. How happy it is for you if you're going through a difficult situation. If you're going through a tough time in life, how happy this is for you. This is really an upside down way of thinking from how we're naturally wired, isn't it? 
We don't think about tough times as being happy days. But James says it is. How happy it is for you if you are enduring trials. Why should that be a happy thing? It gives us an opportunity to trust God a little bit more. It gives us an opportunity to place our faith more fully in Him. Whenever the steering wheel is out of our hands, we have to trust Him completely. How happy it is when you go through difficult things in life, whenever you have to endure trials. You've got to trust Him a little bit more. But there's also something else here that James points out explicitly. He says, because when you have stood the test, you will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love Him. God has promised something for those who endure times of difficulty, testing, and trial, and endure it faithfully. That is key, endure it faithfully. That word endures, it means to remain steadfast, to stand your ground. The type of endurance that James is talking about is not the type of endurance where a whole bunch of bad things have happened to you and you've just been holding on for the ride. James is talking about an active type of endurance, not a passive type where things are just happening to you, but an active type where in the face of daunting circumstances, you're standing your ground. You've got your feet planted firm in Christ and you're not being shaken, you're not being moved. You may get knocked back a few steps, but you come back again and you hold fast. A steadfast, resolute type of endurance. That's what James is talking about here. You must endure. You must stand fast. And that is not to say that life will not knock you down from time to time. And it's not to say that you will not get pushed back and and be shaken. But you will come back and you will plant your feet once again. And you will say, I am standing, Father, on your promises. Rooted in Christ Jesus. And I will not be moved. You must endure if you want to receive the crown. The crown is what God has promised. And the crown that's being talked about here is a crown that James's readers would have been very familiar with. This was the laurel. This was the victor's crown that was awarded to those who had achieved victory, whether it be in a sporting competition like the Olympic Games or maybe on the field of battle. This was the laurel wreath, the victor's crown that would be placed upon the head of one who had endured by standing fast And had overcome. Victory has been granted to the one who has endured. And now the crown. What crown is it here? It says the crown of life. That God has promised. To those who love him. To those who love him. Do you love God? Remember what Jesus said. If you love me. You will keep my commandments. And what is the commandment of Christ? That we love one another, just as he has loved us. If we keep Christ's commandments, if we keep his word, if we stand fast and endure, Christ has promised a crown, the crown of life. James hits upon this idea of a promise to those who love him. In another passage, James chapter 2, verse 5. 
James is talking about a different subject here. He's talking about the rich and the poor and not looking down on the poor and despising them. But he says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Christ has promised good things to those who love him and keep his word and remain steadfast and don't fall away from the gospel, but hold on to it as a lifeline in the midst of a storm. Christ has promised good things. He's promised a kingdom to those who hold on to him. He's promised a crown of life, eternal life, to those who hold fast and hold on to him, to those who love him. You must endure to receive the crown. You must stand the test. It says there in verse 12, when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. That phrase, stood the test, it means to have been approved. Been approved. Years ago, whenever I took my test to run an overhead crane, it was a little nerve-wracking because not only did my immediate supervisors come out to watch, but the bigger bosses, they came too. And then the biggest bosses in the plant, they showed up that day too. And they all stood down there 30 feet below me on the floor and they watched as I went through all of the moves, as I did everything that I had been trained and taught to do, except now it counted. Now it mattered. And I was probably sweating a little bit as I tried to do all of these things without screwing up. I was standing the test. I had to stand the test so that I could be approved. Approved to run that crane. Well, here James is talking about testing, trials, difficulties in our lives. And he says, you need to look at this as just standing the test. God already knows, but you need to find out what is in you. What is your faith like? When life gets difficult and you're being shaken, will you stand fast? Will you hold on to that lifeline? Will you stay true, rooted, and grounded in your faith in Christ? You'll need to find out. You'll need to stand the test in order to be approved. But God has promised good things to those who endure crown of life how happy it is for the one who endures trials it's really an upside down way of thinking from what we are accustomed to but James in the midst of testing and trial he sees a wonderful opportunity for us to find out about our faith for us to trust Christ a little bit fuller a little bit deeper a little bit longer Courage, someone has said, lies in holding on just one second longer. Courage lies in holding on one second longer. I want us to look, secondly this morning, at the source of the struggle. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. We're going to look at the source of the struggle because James wants to clear up a couple misconceptions for us here today. 
the source of the struggle. James 1.13. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. The source of the struggle, don't try to pin this on God, is what James is saying. Don't try to pin this on God. God is not tempted by evil, he says. That is, uh, he should not be put to the test by sinful human beings. That would probably be a better translation of this phrase right here. God should not be put to the test. You remember when Jesus was tested in the wilderness for 40 days. The devil came, tempted him three different times. And one of the things the devil tempted Christ with was um, taking him to the pinnacle of the temple. He said, cast yourself down because it's written that God will give his angels charge over you to bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. He won't even let you sprain your ankle, Jesus. And everyone will see that you're obviously the Christ, the Messiah. So jump off of the temple. And Jesus said, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He was quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, which says, do not test the Lord your God as you tested him at Massa. There it's speaking of the journey of the people of Israel through the wilderness, God providing for them every step of the way, and the people grumble, they complain, and they test the Lord repeatedly. We find out as we read through all of those episodes that Israel tested the Lord ten times during that wilderness journey. Ten times they tested the Lord. It's interesting, the Lord plagued Egypt ten times in delivering the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and then Israel turns around and bites the hand that feeds it by testing the Lord, putting him to the test ten times. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. He says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. God should not be tested by sinful human beings. Probably a better translation of what James is talking about here. Another possible translation of James's words, and this is a very literal one. I'm not sure that it is the right understanding. It may be, but it's a very literal translation. When it says God is not tempted by evil, uh, literally it conveys the idea God is unversed and inexperienced when it comes to evil. And that is a legitimate translation of these words. God is inexperienced when it comes to evil. Praise God. Aren't you glad that he is? I'm sad to say we know what evil is, not because we read about it in a textbook, but because we ourselves have participated in it at points during our lives. We are not inexperienced. Human beings are not inexperienced when it comes to evil, but God is. He's unversed in it. God is not tempted by evil. He's inexperienced when it comes to evil. Don't try to pin this on God. God isn't tempting you. It's interesting here, the word that is translated tempt, it can be translated a few different ways. 
It can mean tempt, of course. It can mean test. It can mean try or trial. James has been using this word over and over again in chapter 1. Anytime he talks about testings or trials, he's using the same word that means temptation. It just depends on the context, which one he's referring to. Here he's obviously referring to temptation because he's talking about evil. And this is important to understand. Sometimes the trial, the difficulty that you're going through is going to be a temptation. It's going to be some moral evil that is testing you. Sometimes the trial or the testing will not be a temptation, but will be something totally benign. Maybe a sickness or a hardship in life. You're not being tempted, but that difficulty is going to bring with it a temptation to take your eyes off of Jesus and place your eyes on your troubles. It's going to bring with it a temptation to stop trusting Jesus and try to handle it yourself. Do you see the distinction there between the two different things? Some testings will be temptations and some testings will bring a temptation to stop trusting God. God doesn't tempt anyone. When we're going through a hardship, difficulty, we might be tempted to say, oh, this is all God's doing. God is tempting me. But James wants to be very clear. God himself is not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anybody to do evil. He allows us to go through tests and trials. Matter of fact, in a In another chapter, James is going to reference a time when Abraham's faith was tested by God. But as far as tempting people to sin, that doesn't come from God. Well, we know where that comes from, don't we? That comes from the devil, right? James does acknowledge in another chapter the role that the devil plays. But that's not what he wants to talk about right here. He doesn't even want to talk about the devil's role as being a tempter. He wants us to accept responsibility for ourselves. God doesn't tempt anyone. Where does tempting come from? Verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. James says if we want to get to the root of it all. That root lies within us. Does the devil play a role at times? Yeah, for sure he does. But think about this. The devil can only play a role in tempting us to sin because there's something in here that corresponds with that. Something he's able to speak to. Something he's able to access in order to entice us and seduce us to sin. It's because there's something in here that he can have any kind of margin of success in his role as a tempter. So James wants to bring it all back to us and bring it back to the root and say, 
look inside. It's in yourself. It's your own desires. And sometimes the desires themselves are not bad things. Do you ever get hungry? Sure. That's a desire. Is that a bad thing? No, of course not. God created these bodies and he created these bodies to need and desire food. But could it become a bad thing? We don't often talk about this sin anymore, but the Bible does. The Bible talks about gluttony. Could a good, right, healthy desire become a bad thing? Sure it can. There are other desires of the body too, but I would have you remember who made the body and who made it to be the way that it is. Well, the Lord did, and the scripture tells us that he made it good. There's nothing wrong with the desire, but when the desire gets out of balance, when the desire becomes the overwhelming focus or the drive, oh, now we find ourselves in a position where we can be drawn aside Drawn away, it says here. Drawn out of the right place. Drawn aside out of the way. And enticed. That word means allured. Seduced. It carries with it the idea of bait. And if you have ever fished, you understand. You've got to put bait on the hook that's attractive to the fish. James is talking about being allured. Seduced by a bait. What is the bait? It's our desire. And it gets out of balance. And we take the bait. And then we want to blame God for it. God is tempting me. God doesn't tempt anyone. He himself cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anybody. I do want to tell you what God does do in the midst of temptation. He always provides a way out. Always. Always. Always, not sometimes, always provides a way out. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. This is one of those verses, if you haven't memorized it, learn it. Highlight it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. Each one of us wants to think of ourselves as unique. But in many ways, we're not. You're never going to experience a temptation that... Other people haven't experienced. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Temptation doesn't come from God, but He does intervene when temptation strikes us. God won't allow it to go on to a point beyond which you're able to bear. When we're being tempted, oftentimes we like to think about how weak and susceptible we are. But God simply, it says, if you want to take the word for what it says and believe it and claim this as a promise, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability to bear it. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. I believe that that is a rock-solid, ironclad promise that you can take to the bank. Will you go through difficult seasons in life? Yes. Will you, during those difficult seasons, be tempted to sin, be tempted to take your eyes off Christ, be tempted to be shaken in your faith? Yes, you will be. But God will not allow that temptation 
to continue to a point beyond which you can bear. He will intervene. The temptation does not come from him, but he will intervene and get involved. And he will provide a way out if we will look for it. And that's the thing. We must be looking for it. I venture to say that most of the time we're looking for a way in rather than looking for a way out. We're interested in seeing whether we'll admit to it or not. How much sin will God forgive? How much will God allow me to get away with? How much of an allowance will he make for me? Because he knows how I am. He knows this is just me. We're looking for ways in instead of ways out. God will provide a way out. Something interesting I want you to see here in verses 15 and 16 is something that I'm going to call the death chain. James puts together a little chain of phrases here. And in doing this, he uses a word that is used nowhere else in the entire New Testament. Verses 15 through 17 or 15 through uh, 16, he says, Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Uh, this word, gives birth, it literally means gives birth to a child. You know, we're not talking like a metaphorical or figurative kind of sense. The word literally means gives birth to a child. And it's only used here in the entire New Testament. He says, after desire has conceived. James pictures desire as a woman on a street corner enticing, seducing you as you pass by. And if you turn aside and are drawn out of the way to go with her, this is what happens. Desire conceives and then gives birth to sin. And then when sin is fully grown, all grown up, sin gives birth to death. Do you see the chain? Desire conceives, gives birth to sin. Sin grows up, is fully mature, and has a child of her own. Gives birth to death. That's the death chain. Hmm. But the last thing James wants us to understand is the unfathomable goodness of God. The unfathomable goodness of God. Far from tempting humans to do evil, God gives good things. James 1.17, he says, Every good and perfect gift is from above. Every perfect, every mature, complete, fully developed gift is from above. That is, it's from God. God doesn't tempt humans to do evil things. God gives good things even to those who do evil things. Because that's who God is. He gives good things. Every good and every perfect gift is from above. He doesn't change. He doesn't change. These good and perfect gifts that come from God, they come down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. James is speaking of the Creator here. You know, back before people watched TV, they used to watch the nighttime sky. People knew the nighttime sky. They were familiar with the stars, with the constellations, and the movement of the planets 
through those constellations. And there were several things that could be noticed. Some stars stayed in the same position to each other as they moved through the nighttime sky, but other stars were wanderers. That's where our word planet comes from. It means wanderer. Some stars wandered and moved and changed their relative positions in the nighttime sky. Something else that was to be noted about some of these was that not only did they change their positions, but they changed their brightness. Or if you have a telescope or binoculars, you can see the change in shape of the planet Venus as shadow moves across it or the change in the moon throughout the course of the month you can see that without any uh, aid for your eyes you can see that the moon's shape appears to change as the earth's shadow moves across it James notes that God is the one who made all of these he made the stars that don't change he made the planets that do but he wants you to understand that he doesn't change like those wandering stars, those planets that have shadows that move across them. God's not like that. He's constant. He doesn't change. He doesn't change in his goodness toward us. He doesn't change in his character, his nature. Verse 18, James wants us to understand that this God who is good, who only gives good and perfect gifts, this God who does not change. Drawing us to himself was all his idea. And he didn't have to do it. James 1.18 says, By his own choice, he gave us birth. There, James is using, once again, that word that is used nowhere else in any other part of the New Testament. He gave us birth. Uh, James is building a second chain in these verses in order to contrast it with that earlier death chain that he showed us. James is showing us a life chain. Drawing us to himself was all God's idea. He didn't have to do it. (coughs) Pardon me. In other words, forget the cosmic scales. You know the picture. We have a set of scales, and they balance one way or the other. I talked to a man one time. I said, what is going to happen to you when you die? He said, well, I'll go to heaven, I hope. I said, you hope? I said, how would you go to heaven? He says, well, I guess if I get to the end of my life, if If the good things I've done outweigh the bad things, I hope God will let me into his heaven. Here was a man who believed in God. He believed in an afterlife. He believed in heaven. He believed in good and evil. But he didn't know that you could know. He didn't know that you could know that you're saved, that you will go to heaven. He had this idea that's been common to many people through the years. If I just do enough good things to maybe slightly outweigh the bad things, Well, God will have to let me in, right? And it simply doesn't work that way. Forget the idea about the cosmic scales. God doesn't have to let you into heaven. And if he does let you in, it's not based upon you doing one more good deed than the bad deeds you did. It's not like that. 
James says, by his own choice, he gave us birth. His own choice, it means his own desire. This is what God wanted to do. He didn't have to do it. He wanted to do it. Remember, every good and perfect gift comes from the God who does good to all. He didn't have to, but he wanted to. By his own choice, he gave us birth. How did he do that? James tells us, by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The word of truth, that's just a phrase James is using to refer to the gospel. The good news about what God has done in and through Jesus Christ in order to reconcile sinners like us to himself. The gospel is the story about what God did for you. That you could not do for yourself, but God did it. Jesus Christ did it. Forget the cosmic scales of hoping the good deeds outweigh the bad. Jesus Christ tipped those scales forever this way. And all you have to do is trust in him. Place your trust, your hope, your destiny in Christ Jesus. He tipped the scales forever to the good side. If you'll just get off of this side of the scale and jump into what Christ has done for you. That's the gospel. That's the good news. God did it. We couldn't. And it was his choice, his desire. He wanted to do it. It's like the biggest, best, goodest thing that anyone could ever do for another person. And God said, I want to do that. I want to do that for Martha. I want to do that for Terry, for Betty. I want to do that for Joe. Just put your name in the blank. God said, I want to do that for them. And he did it. It was his choice. He did it by the gospel, the word of truth. It's through that that God gives us birth. All of those who place their faith, their trust in Jesus Christ, Will receive that new birth. Jesus talked about the new birth in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus came and met with him at nighttime. And Nicodemus wants to know, what do you have to do to enter the kingdom of God? Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you won't even see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. That, that phrase, born again, can also be translated born from above. Jesus said, you must be born from above. You need a new birth, Nicodemus. Forget the scales. You need a new birth. And it comes from above. Well, what do I have to do to get that? There's nothing you can do, Nicodemus. It's all, it's all on God. He wants to do it. And he is doing it. Jesus said, when I am lifted up and hung on a cross, I will draw all men to myself. God today is continuing to draw all men and women, boys and girls, to himself through what Jesus did for us upon the cross. He's drawing you to himself. Just trust in him. Believe in him. It says here that uh, he did this so that we could be a kind of first fruits. First fruits are the first crops that ripen in a growing season um, I see two different possibilities here for what James could be talking about. 
The first one, it depends on your eschatology. That means your study of end things, what you, what you think the Bible teaches about the end times. Uh, I do see a possibility that James is speaking to the audience that he's writing to, and he's, he's talking about that generation of Christians who were alive at that time, the ones to whom James was writing, who were patiently waiting and eagerly anticipating the Lord's return, which James said was going to happen really soon. He could be saying, you, you who are part of this last generation that has been saved from the judgment that's about to fall upon Israel, you are like the first fruits. And there's going to be a bumper crop to follow in the kingdom of God. That's one possibility. Another one is that James is talking about all of us. All of us who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ are like first fruits in this sense. The first fruits are often considered the best fruits. God, by redeeming humanity through Christ Jesus, has made redeemed humanity the apex, the pinnacle, the top of his entire creation. In that sense, we are all first fruits in Jesus Christ because we've been redeemed and God has put redeemed humanity at the top of the mountain. You follow the idea there? Two possibilities. The last thing I want to draw your attention to is the life chain. The life chain. We talked about the death chain. Desire seduces us. It conceives sin. Gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's fully grown, it brings forth death. Separation from God. James directs our attention now to a life chain. God desires. This time it's not our desire. It's God's desire. God desires to draw us to himself. He's not drawing us aside and out of the way. But God is drawing us to himself. He gives the gospel, the word of truth. It takes root in our lives. It brings forth good fruit. It gives us birth. As one of his children. One of his sons and daughters. Praise God we have such a good God who desires to give good things to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the teaching that comes from James who would have us understand our responsibility. We should not blame you through our difficulties, nor should we readily resort to blaming the devil. Rather, we should... Take responsibility for our own desires and acknowledge the temptation that comes along with those desires. But we give thanks that you tempt no man to sin. And Father, you in fact provide a way out of that temptation. Father, we thank you for your own desire to give good things, the very best of good things, to give new life, birth, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, whom you sent to be our Savior. We give you thanks for him. We thank you for what you have done. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. May the grace and peace of God our Father and the ever-faithful one, Jesus Christ, our Lord, be with you all today, this week, and forever. Amen.
Thank you for having tuned in with us today. We hope you found the time in worship and the word to be encouraging, challenging, and strengthening. If so, we'd love to hear from you. We realize there are so many ways you could spend your time. We're glad you chose to spend it with us in worship and the word. Until next time, may the grace and peace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be with you all today, this week, and forever.